Good morning, church. Today's reading will come from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 20. If you'd like, you can use your pew Bible and find the scriptures on page 61. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder 
and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. This concludes the reading of God's word. Good morning, church. We had three weeks of focusing on missions, global missions, and today we pick back up in our study in the book of Exodus. We had been working through this book in the fall and in the spring, took a break for the summer, and now we jump back, jump back in. Exodus from slavery to glory. We'll finish the book of Exodus here in the fall. Today's sermon from Exodus 32 is prone to wander. Prone to wander. Have you ever done a job or an assignment that was completely disgusting? Maybe the sights or the smells were just totally repulsive. Anyone ever do anything like that? Or is anyone ever, or you all have clean jobs, very clean. When I was in high school, I worked as a dishwasher at an Italian restaurant. I worked hard in my job. At least I thought I did. And my boss, uh, I, he saw my hard work and he, he actually decided to remor- reward me with more hard work. And I got to become a line chef, and I was preparing Italian dishes, and I learned so much, and I was really enjoying it. However, on one particularly slow day, I wasn't really doing much. We're kind of just standing around waiting for people to come in to eat, and the boss didn't pay us to stand around. That's what he told us. And so he said, hey, Mark, I have a special job just for you. And I was thinking, finally, something special. Maybe I'll get to shadow him around. Maybe I'll get to see the ins and outs of running a small business. He said, Mark, underneath these metal counters where you all cook the food and prepare the food, there are a few drains. And all the grease and all the food and all the muck that falls and all the liquid you mop up with the dirty floors are pushed down those drains. And I'm thinking, okay, good to know. Thanks for letting me know that. He's teaching me how the building is designed. Let's move on. Um, but then he said, Mark, I need you to crawl under those counters and pull out the metal grates of those drains and clean out the drains. And my mouth dropped. I was like, me? Why me? I didn't really know how disgusting it was, so I set about cleaning the drains. And look, I've done some pretty dirty jobs in my life, and I won't get into all of them. I've cleaned dirty bathrooms. I've cleaned up vomit from others, both family and outside of my family. But nothing in my life compares to how revolting those drains were. The sludge that was stuck on the metal grate for, from years of grease and rotting food and dirt. If you've ever cleaned out a clogged drain, anyone ever do that? And you know how disgusting that stuff is inside. And I had to stick my hands in it. I mean, I, I, okay, all right, I'll stop, I'll stop. I, I couldn't even breathe in the fumes. I was like gagging. This was my special job. Look, today we're going to see the Israelites in such a way that it should make us go, it's pretty repulsive. If there was a smell to what is happening in in Exodus 32, it would be the smell of a disgusting drain. We should read this and go, oh, how horrible. But listen, this isn't just 
and historical event where the Israelites betray the Lord, the very Lord who rescued them from slavery in Egypt to give them their own land and to provide for them. No, this is also our story as well. This is what sin smells like, looks like, and feels like. This is what it looks like when we face times of uncertainty like they did, times of stress and disappointment. Just like them, we will be tempted to turn away from the Lord and turn to idols that we think will satisfy our hearts. And the problem is that idolatry never satisfies because idols can never give us what we desire most. Yes, the Israelites were prone to wander, but so are we. Two points today. Point number one, all sin is a form of idolatry. All sin is a form of idolatry. Look at verse number one of Exodus 32. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Just a reminder, quick review. The Israelites are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai in the desert, in the Sinai Desert, uh, where Moses is now up on the mountain meeting with God, Yahweh. And look, it's only been three months Three months since the people had been enslaved in the land of Egypt for hundreds of years. Three months since, since God saw their harsh conditions and their bondage and their, and their misery. And, and at that time, they were crying out to God for help. And God heard their cries, it says in the beginning of Exodus. And he came down to see their misery. And he calls a man named Moses, who has a really sketchy past, to lead his people out of Egypt. And he shows up to Moses in the burning bush and he commissions Moses to be his spokesman to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go and worship freely in the desert. And so Moses goes and does what God says after a lot of kind of back and forth and Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, no, no, no. Ten plagues. You know the story. You've probably seen the movie. Whichever one you think is your generational movie of this. And Pharaoh sends two million Israelites out of his land after the 10th plague. And in the three months since that event, God has shown his great power and mercy. He spread the Red Sea for his people to pass through when they thought they were doomed. And then it, and then it overwhelmed the Egyptian army. God provides water in the desert, food every day with manna, quail even after they complained. God is literally leading them by a pillar of, of cloud and fire in the day and in the evening. And all this time in the wilderness, God is training them to trust him to know that he can provide. And now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've been there for a while. They're going to be here all the way into the next several books of the Bible. And Moses goes up the mountain. God gives him, speaks to him the Ten Commandments. And then he speaks the entirety of the law. And then he gives six chapters of detailed instructions for the tabernacle, the very physical dwelling of God's presence among his people. And God literally makes a covenant with his people in Exodus 24. And Moses has now been up on the mountain for 40 days. 40 days. Just over a month. And that's when the people say to Aaron, Moses' older brother, the de facto leader right now, that's when they say to him, we don't know what has happened to this guy named Moses. He's been up there too long. He's delayed. It's been too long. We need to do something. <laughs> 
Parents, have you ever been in the car and heard your kids say, it's taking so long? And you're like, it's been 30 minutes. I mean, I don't understand here, but it took 40 days for them to go from Exodus 24, all that you have said, Yahweh, we shall do, to this, up, make us gods that shall go before us. 40 days. Sadly, even though the Lord had rescued his people out of Egypt, Egypt was still in the present of their hearts. One of the most common ways for God to identify, identify himself to the people of Israel is that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, who rescued you out of slavery. This is the central way for how Israel is to relate to God. God is their redeemer. Redeemer means rescues out of. He's their deliverer. And so to now go and make a golden calf and declare, these are our gods who brought us out of the land of Egypt. This is the ultimate betrayal of God. You see, sin is always a rejection of God and seeking something or someone else to take his place. That's called idolatry. You know when you're most tempted to do this? You know when you're most tempted to seek an idol, to turn to an idol? It's when you're stressed, like the Israelites were right now. When you're scared, when you're discouraged, or when you're exposed, when you feel vulnerable. That's when you're most tempted to do what they just did. The people were stressed. They don't know what happened to Moses. They were scared. They're living in the wilderness. Wilderness. There's all kinds of nations around them, and they're exposed. They don't have an army. They don't have homes. They don't even have jobs. They don't have, they don't have direction. When you start feeling stressed, discouraged, scared, exposed, you should know your heart is more vulnerable to seeking something or someone else to fill what is lacking. As one pastor said, in times of fear, stress, or worry, we return to the old gods in which we used to trust. And that's what the Israelites did. Aaron, as a foolish leader, and I could do a whole sermon on failed leadership here, a whole sermon to preach to you what really I need to preach to myself, but I won't. Aaron tells them, give me the gold jewelry that you have on you. Well, where do they even get this gold jewelry? Do you remember? As they were leaving, God caused the Egyptians to somehow give the Israelites gold for the journey. It was like a, a, a last act of God's grace, of God's blessing on his people out of Egypt. It was to be used for the tabernacle. At just a few months ago, they had no gold, right? Now they got all this gold. And now they melt all this gold that God wanted to use to worship him. And, they, and notice Aaron, verse, verse uh, 3, verse 4, he fashions it with a graving tool. He's like, he's working at this. He's doing an artist's work. Keep that in mind what, to what he says later to Moses. He fashions it and says, this, this golden calf, this bull, and that this is the ultimate insult to God from Aaron. These are your gods, O Israel who brought you out of Egypt. This is what we say when we turn to money or our relationships or our children or our job to find our sense of security, our sense of identity. This is what we do. Let me share you three ways of how Israel's idolatry betrayed the first three commandments that the Lord had given them. Three ways that we sin when we do idolatry. First, sin is disobedience. Second, sin is distrust. And third, sin is distortion. 
First, sin is disobedience. The people disobey at least the first two commandments of the law. God said, you shall have no other gods before me, commandment number one. God said, you shall make no image of me, commandment number two. And then they go, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Do you see what's happening? They told God with their lips they would honor him by obeying his commandments. All you said, God, we will do. But in their hearts, they hadn't forsaken the gods of Egypt. Their hearts still cherished the old idols. Here's the point. Your heart must worship something. Even if you're not a Christian here today, you worship something. You value something. You either worship the true God, the living God, who satisfies you and will give you everything you need to live by faith, or you will worship something else that's holding out a promise but can never deliver on that promise. Sin always disobeys God's clear commands. And that disobedience may be outward in some action. You lie. You go sleep around. That's an outward action. But it also, sin also may be an inward, sinful, selfish attitude. I'm going to withhold from my husband to punish him. I'm going to do something to my children that, that will lead, that will stir him up to anger. I'm going to have a mindset or feeling that's sinful, that, that betrays the very commands of God. And I'm here, I'm asking you right now, is there an area of your life where you are directly disobeying God's clear commands? That's idolatry. That slander is idolatry. That gossip is idolatry. That prideful attitude is idolatry. That dishonoring of your parents is idolatry. Sin is disobedience, but it's much more than that. It's also distrust. They distrusted the heart of God. What do I mean? They didn't trust what God was doing up there on the mountain with Moses. They didn't trust his timing. The people were right where they were supposed to be, and they didn't know it. They didn't believe it. They didn't trust it. Look, the Israelites were literally camped in the middle of a wilderness. No land of their own yet. No homes, no crops to harvest, no army to protect them. And look, they were right in the center of God's will. The people of Israel were being fed every day including this very day, with the manna from above. They had a daily reminder that God was still there. God was still providing for them. Not only that, all they needed to do was look up on the mountain and see the pillar of cloud and fire on the mountain, the symbol of God's presence, that he was already leading them, that he was there with them. All they had to do was wait for God to patiently lead them in his timing and his way, but they wouldn't do it. God's timing didn't fit into their expectations. And so they get anxious and they get afraid and they finally take matters into their own hands. And we do the ex exact same thing. I know I sound like a broken record because I, I quote my professor all the time. When life stinks, our perspective shrinks. Sin causes us to lose sight of God's gracious provision right in our lives right now we lose perspective and we start to doubt God's goodness and when we doubt God's goodness we're doubting his very heart and that's when we're prone to our to turn to our sacred cows 
That's where the expression comes from, this story. What is your sacred cow? What is it that that you think you can't live without? What do you turn to when you start to feel anxious, scared, exposed? What do you look to to provide security, identity, approval? If you can honestly answer that question, which all of us need to, we must, then you can say, this is my sacred cow. This is what I fashion. This is what I turn to and think, this will give me value. This will give me identity. This will give me security. This will get me what I'm living for. This will be my all in all. And, and that honestly is our sacred cows. And it's likely something you used to turn to before you were a Christian. Not always, but likely. Whatever that is for you, that is your functional God. And here's the thing about gods, little g-gods, idols. Idols will always demand more from you than you can give, and they will never give you what you desire. Some of us are in a trial right now, and you're being tempted to doubt God's plan and God's timing, God's heart. And the enemy wants you to take matters into your own hands. And I am urging you to resist that temp- temptation. To No matter what you turn to, you, you need to know clearly today. Don't let the fog, don't let the darkness. Look, never doubt in the dark what God has said to you in the light. You need to remember. You need to have, you need to be able to see even when you can't see. That that thing, whatever you turn to, will never satisfy like your Savior God will. Sin is disobedience. Sin is distrust. But it's also distortion. Distortion in that they wanted to worship God on their terms, not His. What were they doing? They were twisting God's word to fit their own priorities. They came up with this alternative manner of worship using an alternate manner uh, object of worship. So the people demand of Moses, of Aaron, up, get up, make us gods who shall go before us. And Aaron foolishly crafts a golden calf. Well, the form wasn't arbitrary. It's not like he was like, man, what can I make that they, that, that, that's really, no, they, he knew what he was going to make. Why? Because in Egypt, that was one of the gods, one of the idols. He made a, it says golden calf. The word calf, it means young bull. It's a bull. It's a symbol of strength and fertility. In Egypt and the Canaanite religions, a bull is a symbol of strength. It was the Egyptian god Apis was a bull. Even today, we talk about a, the stock market being in a bull market. What does that mean? It's a strong market. What is Israel doing? They're taking an image from a surrounding culture and applying it to God. So in their own way, they're reimagining God. This is a distortion of the God who who is the great I am. This is a distortion of him. They want to worship God in their own way, 
which included practices that were from the world and not sanctioned by God himself. They wanted a God who was visible and manageable. They wanted to reduce God, who, who is who he is. You can't reduce him. You can't see him. You can't put him in a box. And they want to take gold and put it together and say, this is God. Now we can understand him. Now we can touch and feel him. Oh yeah, this is God. This is a far cry from the God who tells Moses, take off your sandals, the very place you're standing is holy ground. That kind of God is not manageable. That kind of God doesn't ask us what we think. But the gods like this idol, we get to determine what they look like. We get to determine how we worship them. They didn't want that kind of God. They didn't want a burning bush kind of God, and neither do we. We like some aspects of our church, right? But we, we like that there's community and there's, there's loving people and activities and events. Uh, some people like the benefits of a church, but they don't like actually caring about obeying God's commands, like being serious about it. Like, don't call me to live a certain way. I just want to enjoy Christian community. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's a different God. There are all kinds of other so-called churches that are, that are built around just community. We're built around God as our king who calls us to follow him. Some people want a God who forgives sins, but not a God who tells you how to live your life. Maybe you like some parts of the Bible, Thomas Jefferson, and you don't like other parts, and you kind of, you don't rip them out like Jefferson, but you just ignore them. These are all ways that we distort God. And what we're doing is we're seeking to mold God into our image or worse, our, our culture's image when in reality we have forgotten that we were made in His image. We have to be on guard against creating our own version of, of God. Is there any way, Christian, where you are distorting God, trying to fit Him into a more manageable, controllable size? This is sin. All sin is a form of idolatry. Point number two, God judges sin and graciously provides a mediator. God is in the middle of giving Moses all these instructions, and then verse seven, God cuts off. He says, Moses, go down to your people, your people. Notice he kind of says that he lays it on Moses. These are your people. Go down to your people, for they have corrupted themselves. And then in verse 9, God says, these people are a stiff-necked people. Stiff meaning just a real tough. They, they, they refuse to bow their necks, their hearts, to the one true God. This is humanity's core problem. We refuse to bow to the God who loves us and created us, and we keep turning after false gods. And in response to our rebellion, God declares judgment. Verse 10. Now therefore, God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God's anger burns because sin betrays his covenant relationship with his people. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Many people say, I, I want a God of love, not a God who has anger. But look, if you have a God who never gets angry, you can't have a God of love. Because if he never gets angry, about anything, he doesn't love anything. 
I'm just, I, I, I'm just trying to tear down some of the things. You know, our students go away to schools and to colleges, and, and like the one I went to, University of Maryland, and professors are, are brilliant, and they got all these degrees, and, or they have friends who are so smart or so cool, and they'll say all these things that sound so good, and until you start peeling away the, the layers and you start to realize there's no foundation to that. It sounds great, but it's not true. Think about it. If you love someone and that person is threatened by something or someone, it should make you angry. If you are indifferent to that or don't care, then you don't really love that person. True love always gets angry at some point. And anger is simply love in motion towards a threat to that which you love. In the Bible, God always gets angry at sin because it is a poison that destroys the human soul, it destroys families, it destroys communities, and that makes God angry because he loves us immensely. God must judge sin because God is holy. And that's why he suggests to Moses, he's going to destroy the nation and begin again with Moses. I said suggest, because then Moses intercedes for the people in verses 11 to 14, and reminds God, God, you are the one who rescued us out of Egypt. You are the one who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our forefathers. You gave them covenant promises. You said you would never stop being for them, watching over them, and for their descendants. What's Moses doing? He's not trying to change God's mind. God, in this way, he does this with Moses often, he's actually interacting with Moses in a way that invites him to intercede for his people. Moses is interceding, and in response to his prayer, God shows mercy to the people and doesn't destroy them, but he does judge them. He does bring judgment. He doesn't destroy, but he judges. And so Moses goes down off the mountain with the two tablets containing the very law written with the finger of God. It says he goes down the mountain, and when Moses sees the people worshiping the golden calf, singing and engaging the word you see in verse 6 that says play, it's not just playing. They weren't just playing video games, right? This is ungodly sexual activity. There's a word for this. Moses goes down, he sees what's happening, and he literally, in his anger, he smashes the tablets to the ground. You say, well, did Moses do something wrong? Well, no, he never gets punished for it. God never said anything to him for doing that. This is symbolic. The breaking of the tablets is symbolic that the people have broken covenant with God. The tablets were the covenant. Moses asked Aaron in verse 21, what, do you, what did you do? What is happening here? And you know what Aaron says? He says, you know how wicked these people are. He said, you know these people. And then the, you know what he says after that? So he says, so I, I, I took the gold and I threw it in the fire. And here's what he says. And out came this calf. <laughs> I'm telling you, I could preach a sermon on failed leadership. Out came this calf. What is he like? A, was he a child? What, what's in your pocket? I don't know. It, it's sticking out. I don't know. It's candy. I don't know how it got there. You don't know how the candy got in your pocket? I don't know. Why is the can empty? I don't know. I, I see Coke on your lip. I don't know. It just happened. 
I walked to the fridge and out came the soda that I, I, I don't know, no. Sorry. That's how it works. We all do it. Right? We all do that. We blame shift. We all do it. It's like Adam in the garden. Adam, what did you do? Ah, she, this woman you gave me, God. Good grief, God. Why did you do that? Aaron is acting like a child. But the sin runs deep. From Aaron to the people. And this account is meant to show us the depth of their sin. Look, keep reading this chapter. There are really uncomfortable things in this story. Verse 30, Moses grinds up, right? Verse 20, Moses grinds up the golden calf into powder and puts it in the water and tells everyone to drink it. Yeah, you better believe it made them sick. It made them sick, but that's because sin had already made them sicker. And it gets worse. Verse 27, Moses, at his command, the the Levites go through the camp and kill 3,000 men as part of God's judgment. Seems brutal, right? That's the point. Sin is brutal. I know the idols that we turn to seem harmless. I know they seem sometimes even so very appealing. I know, trust me, I know. I am, I still, I am in the battle with you. I am. But our idols will only lead us down the path to death. But we can't see it in the moment. All we see is gold. Solid gold. Don't you see death? The death here is sin made visible for his people. The sin that we keep turning to is not harmless. It's lethal. In the midst of this terrible scene, Moses asks an important question in verse 26. It says, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. God doesn't just judge sin here, which he does. This is astounding. Moses gets up and he invites any single Israelite, any single person. Right now, you can repent. You can turn. You can reaffirm your commitment to Yahweh. Repentance means we don't minimize sin. We don't blame shift. We take responsibility. Who is on the Lord's side, Moses said, come to me. This is the first step to experiencing God's grace. But forgiveness and restoration with God always requires more than repentance. It's more than just, I'm sorry, I, I, I was wrong. And God goes, eh, it's okay. Drink a little gold. No, God requires, always requires a mediator to stand in our place and make atonement. Verse 30, Moses is that mediator. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses goes back up the mountain, appeals to God for his forgiveness. And if you read the account, he goes as far as to say this to God. God, verse 32, if you will forgive their sin, great. But if you don't, then blot me out of your book instead of them. In other words, Moses is saying, this is important, listen, let me take the judgment for their great sin. If you're not willing to forgive, if you're not willing to offer mercy to them, then judge me in their place. Blot me out instead of them. 
This is incredible. Moses understands the nature of salvation, that when people sin, we need a substitute. Moses was willing to take the blame for what he did not do and experience the judgment he did not deserve. But alas, Moses is not able to be that substitute. He cannot make atonement for them because he himself is someone who has sinned and needs a mediator as well. And God says in verse 34, he kind of broadens this. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. He says, in a day that is coming, I will punish their sin. And there was a, uh, an immediate fulfillment of this. There's a plague that goes to the, the people. But, but, but he says this so broadly. There is a day coming when their sin will be accounted for, will be atoned for, will be punished. And I'm here to tell you there's good news today, church. That day has already come. They were looking for that day. They had no idea how that would happen, but we know that has happened. You see, God told Moses, go down off the mountain and see what this people have done. God told his son Jesus, go down off the mountain, son, and see what the people have done. And Jesus came down from his holy mountain, the mountain of heaven, and he saw how all of humanity keeps turning to idols, turning to find meaning and significance and satisfaction and hope in the things of this world, the things that will never satisfy. We keep rebelling against our creator and we justify it. Whether you're non-Christian or Christian, we think, we think, oh, it's okay for me to act like this to my spouse. I'm teaching her a lesson. It's okay for me to act like this to my boss. He's a jerk. It's okay for me to do all these things. No, but Jesus knows how deadly our idolatry is. So Jesus comes down and he doesn't crush the law. He doesn't crush the tablets of the law. Why? Because there is, it's not the law, it's him. He is the embodiment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. That's why there's nothing physical for him to crush, but that's why on the cross he himself was crushed. You see, he was crushed because we have broken covenant. Moses prayed, blot me out of your book, but he couldn't do that. Jesus came and he, and he himself was blotted out for us. He became, we read it earlier, for our sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That was the cross. God took God's, God took, Jesus took God's righteous judgment against our sin and the ultimate punishment for our sin, death, and he did it for you. Why? Why was God's anger laid on Jesus? Because he loves you and his anger moved him to action. He doesn't want sin to keep poisoning us. We don't have to drink the, the stuff that makes us sick anymore. God can heal us. Look, if Jesus didn't come down and intercede for us, we would be destroyed. But he did come. Do you see his love for you on the cross? He came and he died for you, and three days later, he walked out of the tomb alive to prove, look, I don't just have power over death. I have the keys to the kingdom. I can declare you are forgiven, and I can give you my eternal life. And now God asks every single one of us the question, who's on the Lord's side? Who's on the Lord's side? If you're not a Christian, and, you, and maybe your parents are Christians, maybe you think you're a Christian, look, God has placed you here for this moment, and he is calling you to humbly admit your sin, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus as Savior, because if you don't, you will walk down a path that leads to destruction and wrath against sin. 
But if you will turn, he says, I can restore. I can renew. I can forgive. You will never pay the penalty for your sin because Jesus already paid it. You will never be alone. I will always be with you. Christian, do you believe that today? No matter what you have done, he can forgive and restore. No matter what idols you are struggling with, he is a mighty God. He has the power to dash idols. Well, how does he do that? He does it through the normal means of grace, gathering with the body, through prayer, reading scripture, being in community, having others help you. What, is my, what do you think my idols are? Do you have the courage to ask someone that this week? Christian, are you, con- look, here's how I know you, here's how you can have the assurance to do that. If you are convinced that he will never blot your name out of his book. If you are really convinced, you can ask that because no matter what the things are you struggle with, it's not going to hinder you from being his son or daughter. And you can actually then engage in, how do, I, how do I remove this idol? How do I turn from it to Jesus? How do I re- and, and how do you do that? The more you live in the reality that he alone satisfies, he is your identity, he is your hope, in Christ alone, all of a sudden those idols will seem so unappealing. I know that in times of trouble, when you're stressed or worried or afraid, it can be tempted to turn back to the old gods, the old habits, We are prone to wander, but we don't have to. See the things for what they are, the idols for what they are, and keep trusting the heart of God even when you don't understand the ways of God. Let's pray. Father, we admit we need you. We also admit we have all of you. There is nothing that you have withheld from us. Romans 8 says that you who did not spare your own son but graciously gave him up for us all, how will you not also graciously give us all things? We know, Lord, that you have spoken, you have proven if you will do the greatest thing, if you will give us our greatest need, if you will meet our deepest desires, can we not trust you with every other little thing, every other thing that happens in this life, every other thing that that seems to hold out a promise? Lord, you know the things of our hearts. You know the unique things that we're struggling with. And I pray that in this moment, as believers, we would not be thinking of what the the issues are for our spouse or our kids or our small group leaders or our in-laws, but we would think of our idols, our struggles, the things we are tempted to turn to. And today, Lord, we just want to admit we are on your side. Help us. Some of us don't know how how to turn from the idols. All we know to do today is say, we want to be on your side. We want to say Jesus Christ alone is Lord. God, bring good news today. Remind us that we walk out not as Israelites, but as sons and daughters. Resurrected from the dead. Be our vision, Father. Be our all in all. Show us the joy of following you is better than any momentary pleasure of sin. We ask this 
for the glory of your name, for the beauty of your church to be on display. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.